There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 6th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Airgrid is warning us today of a potential risk to the supply of electricity. It's 50 years since we've had widespread power cuts in this country, but the cost of energy has proven to be unaffordable for some recently, resulting in them being cut off and left in the dark. We know that 712 households were disconnected in the first half of this year, and that, of course, is before the impact of the huge increases in bills this winter. The thoughts of no light or heat going into the dark, cold winter doesn't bear thinking about. That's why in the budget we announced unprecedented measures to support people and help people get through this winter. Welcome measures, no doubt, but concern continues, especially for people who pay-as-you-go. In respect of pay-as-you-go meters, again, as part of its statutory role, the CRU has very clear functions regarding consumer protection, including our own disconnections and protections for those on prepay meters. And as part of responses six and seven, under the National Energy Security Framework, CRU announced enhanced consumer protection measures for implementation this winter, uh, and particularly for customers on prepay meters. They have strengthened the um, protections um, there. The Taoiseach, Michal Martin, debating the cost of living crisis and the concerns about keeping the lights on during leaders' questions in the Dáil yesterday with Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald. These times are very reminiscent of a decade decade ago when the Troika was in town and when people used to ration everything, including food. I mean, I remember families having uh, cornflake days. That was, that was dinner for them. And now what I, what I am hearing from families is that they are rationing their electricity. And the, the reality and for many and the fear for many, many more is that they're left in a position of taking a decision to you turn on the light or do you put uh, breakfast in front of your child? That That's the reality. Indeed, a grim reality, if ever. But government says its intention is to protect people against getting cut off. The total number of prepay electricity meters is around 340,000, actually. Uh, and um, 90,000 of those meters being provided to people 
who have experienced electricity debt to help them budget these costs. Um, and, and, and Gas Network Ireland have confirmed there's about 117,000 pay-as-you-go meters. And through the social protection system and through the work of CRU, which is the statutory body, we will protect people. Our entire purpose is to protect people. We have no interest in not protecting people. That's uh, the Taoiseach, Mia Hall-Martin. Let's speak now to Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Some reassurances uh, from Mia Hall-Martin there yesterday. Uh, are you satisfied, Suzanne? The issue, I suppose, over, if we're talking about prepaid meters, that has been something that has been a concern, I suppose, for a very long time, is that when you run out of money, you run out of electricity. So um, hopefully the CRU will be able to look after those households who are on those prepay meters because they are already paying extra, you know, per unit, um, usually than than those of us who are on bills. So it is a concern, I think, just, just generally. I mean, every single household in the country this year has seen their bills for the basics go up. So your heat, your light, putting a few bottles of petrol in the car and then going to the supermarket. All of that has cost more this year than it has for a very long time. And our concern is that for some households, that doesn't mean crisis. It does mean maybe, you know, slightly less nice things when you go to the supermarket and slightly less, slightly fewer trips. But for, for, for the households who are in crisis, they really do need the support. So hopefully... The, um, the the measures that they're taking to ensure that those on prepay meters will also be able to access that credit will be very welcome. All right. Uh, did Mary Lou MacDonald sum up uh, the type of crisis that you're speaking about there when she spoke about the choice of turning on the light or putting a breakfast in front of your child? Yeah. I mean, you, if, we, if we go back to the core social welfare rate, so one adult um, is getting €208 Euro a week and that has to pay their rent. That has to. I mean, it, it, I mean, obviously, if somebody's paying a mortgage, then you know they're in discussion with their bank. They're obviously they're probably paying maybe differential rent rates to their mortgage, but they're going to be paying you know something to put the roof over their head. They're trying to fill up the kitchen cupboards with that. They're trying to put the shower on. Trying to top up their phone. You know, it's, it's a lot. Two hundred and eight euro has to go a very, very, very long way, and I don't think it hasn't cut it for a long time anyway. And this year has really shown the impossibility of getting by on a social welfare income. And for the budget, I read a lot of pre-budget submissions from the community and voluntary sector. Everybody, it was it was almost unanimous. I can't actually think of anybody who wasn't looking for a minimum increase of €20 Euro in social welfare rates, and what we got was 12 So it isn't, it isn't going to, it isn't going to go far enough. I appreciate the one-off measures would be very welcome in a lot of households, but I would imagine it's already been spent, um, you know, if you know you're getting that double payment in October or November, it's already been allocated more than likely. It's probably dealing with arrears. Maybe some people might be looking at that, for, you know, to, to get them through Christmas. So we really, you know, I, I, I am concerned, I think, about how these households are going to, to, to get by for the winter. Hmm. And what keeps going through my mind is that for every penny the Department of Social Protection hasn't spent in budget 2023 in increasing social welfare rates, the Department of Health will pick up. I can guarantee you people will be presenting um, to their hospitals. People will be people will get sick this Christmas if they're not eating well, if they're not able to heat their homes, all of that. Like The money will be spent somewhere and it would have been much better off spending it on keeping people well and happy, you know, mm. in, you know that they'd have enough 
rather than you know letting them go come in on trolleys it doesn't make sense to me Alright so Taoiseach saying there there's 340,000 people on prepaid metres 90,000 of those people are on prepaid metres because they found themselves in debt in arrears with their electricity bills so now what they do is they put money into the meter obviously and then they turn on their lights but if they don't have money to put into the meter the lights won't come on uh, so how will that work? H- how can you stop people from being cut off? Because you're always cut off unless you put the money in advance. Well, this has always been the case <clears throat> that anybody on, on, on a prepay meet or what was, mm. it was known as sort of self-disconnection. And the concern that we would have had, there's been a few reports on it, but not much. Um, the concern that you would have had is that it's very, very difficult to to quantify that. So the CRU, there was a headline there during the week, there's 125,000 accounts in arrears at the moment for um, utility bills. So if you're hooked up as opposed to what what I you know the normal bill yeah. process, the CRU can give you statistics and say uh, Mary Lou mentioned them there. Like however many hundred people have been disconnected. Seven hundred and twelve, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the prepay, the pre, and again, and again, to be yeah. fair, they everything that can possibly be done is done before a disconnection would take place. Um, and especially over the winter months, and I would encourage anybody as well who. Um, they do keep a list of vulnerable consumers and vulnerable customers. Yeah. So people who are reliant on machines to keep them alive um, would definitely, they would need to register that with their utility company so that they know. But there is a, there's always been a concern about people on prepay meters because as you said, they put a tenner into the meter, mm. eight might be going to their current usage and two then might be paying off the arrears or whatever sort of agreement that they have in place. So you're not even getting the full the full benefit of the money you put in but that you know that is a concern that people are if you get a payment on a Tuesday that you've been sitting in the dark since Sunday so I hope that the CRU will be able to come to some sort of an arrangement and ensure that those meters also get topped up but you know this is this is an ongoing issue and I suppose maybe it's just been highlighted now Mm. by the, the, the sheer cost of it yeah the electricity won't work unless you put the money in first so if you're uh, looking in your purse this morning and you haven't really got two brass farthings uh, and you're thinking how will I get to the end of the day uh, and you need to do some shopping or whatever uh, I take it that at that stage you're down to the community welfare officer how long will it take before the community welfare officer can give you money to put into the meter if they do uh, agree to doing that yeah, I had read somewhere, and again, now this is, I'm, I'm quoting from, you know, a, a newspaper or a headline article that I had seen recently enough, but it was eight weeks. Um, now, whether that has changed or not, I'm not too sure, just for the, 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 the additional needs payments that are out there. Yeah. There are obviously charities that are able to, to help as well. Um, the Money Advice and Budgeting Service as well, I would encourage anybody who's struggling with utility arrears to give them a ring to see whether they can put some sort of a, a deal in place with your mm. utility provider. But that is it. If you don't have the money in your purse, um, you cannot top up the meter. You will be sitting in the dark until you get your next payment. Right, so let's say you have a, a tenner. Cold winter's night. Um, yeah. You decide um, that you're going to have to have uh, uh, some sort of power. Um, so you put the tenner in the meter, but you don't have any dinner. What do you do then? Go to charity? Um, I mean, <laughs> this is this is why we called for the €20 Euro on the social welfare rate. Mm. I mean, these are the sort of 
you know, this is not Dickens we're talking about. This well, I was just going to say, it's a Dickensian conversation, yeah, isn't it? It's hard yeah, to believe yeah. that we're having it here in one of the yeah. richest countries in the world. You see, now there you have it, okay? The, the, it's about resources. So as you said, we are we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And then to look at, like, the CSO publication yesterday on child deprivation, we shouldn't be having these conversations about... Um, households that can't afford two pairs of properly fitting shoes for their children, can't afford swimming lessons for their kids, can't afford to send their kids on school trips. Like We should we should not be having that kind of conversation. Mm. Can't afford what most of us would call a, a dinner, uh, a dinner which yeah. comprises of either meat or chicken or fish or a vegetarian equivalent. Yeah, yeah. All of that, like you've got those 11 indicators of deprivation. You have, um, but I mean, it, it boils down to, I think that, if you're not able to do the same things as everybody else, then, you know, that's 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 sort of social exclusion piece. So, you know, it isn't it necess- it's not about keeping up with the Joneses, but it is about being able to go into town with your pals. It is about being able to maybe, you know, walk around at the chipper and get a bag of chips and sit in a wall with your pals. You know, these are some things that kids do, you know, when you're in your teens and you know, to not be able to do those things and as a parent to be not able to provide for your kid to be able to do those things is is really, really, really damaging. So you've got the financial cost of all of this because there is a financial cost to this. Like poverty isn't cost neutral. You're picking up the pieces in other departments. But the damage done to human lives and, you know, the ability to flourish, if kids are going to school and their bellies aren't full and they don't have, you know, warm coat and their shoes don't fit properly, if if they're living in emergency accommodation again, like mm. we're looking at the recent homelessness figures and they're huge. If you're having to do trying to do homework in, in a single bedroom with your mom and your dad and your two brothers and your three sisters, I mean, you know, all of these things and we can it goes back to that point that you made. We can do better. The resources are there. Yeah, and it's particularly worse uh, for single parents. Uh, over 12% of single parents can't afford two pairs of shoes, properly fitting shoes for their children, that is. Uh, and uh, then again, as we discussed yesterday, if you're unemployed and if you're renting as opposed to owning your own home, and quite often single parents are in all of those categories. Well, that's it. I mean, the figures from the CSO just really, it's just hammering home the same points that we've seen when we looked at inflation, when we look at poverty, it's who's most at risk. And it is, it's the lone parent household, it's the low work intensity household, it's rented households. Now, this one doesn't, I haven't gone too much into this. I don't know whether it does an urban and a rural divide. I don't think it did. But when we looked at inflation, you could see that there was that urban rural divide as well, that the more rural you are, the higher, um, the, the, the higher an impact inflation had because of things like fuel, that you were probably using solid fuel, home heating mm. oil, and if if you have to have the car in rural Ireland, mm. so it was costing you more to fill up the tank every week. So it is. It, it's just hitting home the same points over and over and over again. Yeah. Again, we, we need to look at you know again that whole thing about resources. If we have enough, where are we spending it? How are we supporting people to to live the best lives they possibly can? And I appreciate the double child benefit was welcome. Right. I mean, again, mine's already spent in my head. Mm. Um, you know, and the energy credits to households have been welcomed. But there are plenty of households who don't need that. And the money would probably have better been spent, would definitely have better been spent by targeting those households who are who are really, really, really struggling. As you said, the people who 
are sitting there with an empty purse and there's no food in the press and there's no 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 money for them either. But there's only so much any government can do and the government is putting in a, a 11 billion euro and it's in the context of uh, the war uh, and the Taoiseach uh, outlining uh, that that was driving a, a lot of the problems that the country and indeed people in the country are facing into uh, in, when he spoke in, in the Dáil yesterday uh, and putting particular emphasis uh, on the efforts that government are, are doing to help people through this and that they're hoping that they'll be able to get everybody through this. Uh, it really is challenging, isn't it? Uh, and despite, we, It's a long time uh, since we've had conversations like this in, in this country. There's a lot of people uh, who won't remember conversations like this. We've always had a degree of poverty, uh, some would say a lot of poverty, uh, but the concern for so many people who could be in a position now that they can't afford to turn on the lights or there's a choice between that and feeding their children and whatever, uh, has never been uh, as stark uh, as it is uh, this year because of all of the problems that are created by the war. Uh, What else can be done at this stage? You mentioned the increases in social welfare. They weren't what you would have liked them to have been. Government says you have to take it all in the round and that they're doing their best. Uh, They're trying their best as well to reassure people that they'll uh, be there to pick up the pieces if things start to fall apart. I kind of take one step back and look at, as you said, decisions that government have made. And again, if we go back decades, we go back to, you know, previous recessions, previous. I mean, Ireland was a very different country 50, 60 years ago. But if you look at decisions about things like housing, if we had maintained our level of social housing output, maybe we wouldn't have so many people in poverty. If we had implemented Slauncher Care, you know, which is still, you know, a work in progress. So I think there's lots of other things that can be done to increase people's well-being <clears throat> and to reduce the cost of living. I mean, again, that CSO stat shows, like, you know, those living in, in rented households, a lot of people in the private rented sector should be in social housing accommodation, but there is no social housing. So it, it's all of those things, I think, are connected in the round. And our healthcare system, we spend an enormous amount of money on our healthcare system, <clears throat> And it's been shown that by looking at, you know, and we're very reliant on the, the acute hospitals. So, again, we're turning up to A&E um, when we shouldn't be. We should be in primary care centres. We have people in beds because they don't have, there's not the home help that they need to be able to, to go home. All of those things. So, I think it, it's about more than, I mean, for us, poverty is more than money. It is money. It's primarily money. But if you look at all the other things that government can do to be able to alleviate the pressures on households as well, it, it's all in the round. It's every department has some transport. All of you know, all of those things do impact on how people are able to go about their business. Mm. And I think housing is a key one. I think housing again. How long are we talking about a housing crisis? I mean, you know, you can't. I don't know. I don't know if you can. Can, can you be in crisis for for decades? <laughs> Mm, or then does mm. it just become, you know, normalised? Yeah. I mean, mm. it, it does, and again, like the budget really was very quiet on housing, very, mm. very quiet on housing. Yeah. And a, a lot of excuses, uh, little uh, in the way of solutions, it, it would seem, uh, on the ground in reality. Uh, I suppose the test will be in these figures. Statistics are, are very crude, uh, but... 
At the same time, uh, if 712 people had uh, their electricity cut off in the first six months of uh, this year before the prices went up, uh, you'd expect uh, in the second half of the year, in a worst case scenario, that that could be a couple of thousand people. If the measures the government has taken do the job they're intended to do and offset these increases, uh, potentially, I suppose, that number could half to 300 people. We live in hope, absolutely. I mean, you know, the government has put these measures in and hopefully they will get the outcome that they are working towards. As I said, the difficulty, I think, with things like food and heat and light and the roof over your head is that they're non-negotiable. So if you, it's very hard to make, it's very hard to cut back, you know, it's very hard to to, to make savings. You can go in, you can switch off lights and you can unplug things. But your bill, if your bill is going up, um, it's usually the first one is a bit of a shocker, but it's, it can be very, very hard. Again, if you're on a fixed income, to, to be able sort of to catch up on those arrears. So, and again, I, you know, I, I do know that the CRU, like the, the companies are, are, they are very reluctant to disconnect. So I suppose if there might be some comfort there that, you know, there would be negotiations, there would be, um, you know, that they will put plans in place and all of those things, as you said, to help people to deal with their arrears. So fingers crossed, you know, mm-hmm. the, the energy credits will go a long way. They'll get us through to early next year. But inflation isn't going anywhere. Um, 2023, we'll see, I think, it's, you know, they reckon it's still going to be a couple of percentage points. So, so it could be, I don't know, I mean, when we look at, you know, next April, May, we sometimes get snow in May, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a cold, damp country. And again, you look at the housing stock, how old the housing stock is and how, you know, insulated the whole. So, you know, retrofitting, all of that thing, all of that will need to happen for us to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and to for us to, so not only, you know, are we going to struggle to pay our energy bills, we also need to be looking at ways, I think, of reducing our energy usage in the long term as well. Okay. We have to leave it there, Suzanne. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Suzanne Rogers is a research and policy analyst for Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, last year, some 14,000 people called this telephone number, 1-800-77-8888. They rang that number, 14,000 of them, uh, because they'd been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed or raped or abused as a child. Uh, The number, by the way, is uh, the 24-hour helpline that is provided by the Dublin Rape Crisis, and it's 1-800-77-8888. We'll be repeating that number in a few minutes' time if you'd like to phone it yourself uh, because uh, you've been subjected to that type of treatment or you're concerned about somebody else uh, who may be in that position for that matter. Uh, The statistic of the 14,000 calls uh, features uh, in uh, the annual report from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and its CEO, Nolene Blackwell, is on the line. Good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Your reports in the last couple of years have been a little bit different than... Uh, previous years in that uh, we've been living with a, a global pandemic and, and uh, I think COVID lockdowns and uh, the lifting of restrictions factor into a, a lot of the calls that you received in the last year. Yeah, that's that's right, Michael. Um, it's funny that what, even just thinking about it sort of in terms of the, the workload, COVID has really made a difference to the way in which people approach us. So that whenever there are really strict restrictions going on, 
the helpline tends not to be that busy because I think, we think, people often don't have the privacy they need to, you know, to, to contact us or they're dealing with other things like having children at home or, um, uh, yeah, just not having privacy or space for themselves and having other things to think about. But it has also impacted in the way in which the, the people who've been in contact with us have, uh, as you say, they have contacted us because either themselves or someone close to them has suffered all of the damage and the harm that happens with um, a sexual assault up to and including rape. Mm. And, and the, the damage can be really very different from person to person. But so they've had that to deal with. And then COVID has added a layer of anxiety to an awful lot of people's lives anyway. So if you add that in to somebody who is already trying to cope with a severe impact, you know, it has just been harder for them. So even in the times where our phone lines weren't getting as many calls maybe as they would have if there was no COVID there in those months, the calls were more intense. Mm. People felt more isolated. They felt a greater need to contact us. So we were very, very grateful that we were able to keep the helpline going day and night all of the months of the pandemic all of the days because that took you know that took um, it it took people to call us it also took our great staff and volunteers to run the service during that time and to make sure that it was covered at all times and we even managed to extend it a bit we'd started uh, we'd dipped our toe into web chat in the previous year over 400 people contacted us in 2021 via web chat and they like it. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of them would prefer that than speaking to somebody. And just in December of last year, we've also launched an interpretation service on the helpline so that somebody can tell us their story in their own language, in their own words. It's hard enough to talk about in your first language, but we've only been able to listen to them in English. But now during office working hours, we, we can listen to them in their own language because we can plug in to simultaneous interpretation. Okay, that's a, a fantastic service. Uh, it's quite astonishing uh, the amount of calls that you received in relation to child sexual abuse. Uh, children who were abused or adults calling you because they were abused yes. when they were children. Uh, and that accounted for 30% of the calls. We're talking more than 4,000 calls about child sexual abuse. Yes. Um, and, and of course, the thing is that not all of them are new instances all of the time. Uh, so, so they could be people. People often call the helpline from time to time. You know, they might have been through therapy. Something might have happened ages ago, but they come back in. Something happens. I, I kind of compare it. It's, it's not a, a total comparison, but kind of like a bad back that you always have to watch. And sometimes people need a little bit of help on the helpline. So some of it will be historic. But also child sexual abuse is also kind of changing. We're going to have to take a, a bigger look at that in some ways. The fact that actually chil- ch- children abusing other children is increasing. Older children being abused is also, as far as we can see, increasing. But there has always been that on the helpline. There has always been a significant cohort of people who were so badly damaged by the abuse suffered on them or experienced by them as children that the impact goes into their adult life. It has changed the way in which they operated, the way in which they developed and they need support for that as well. It's actually awful, Michael, to think about that 
to think that the damage you can do to a child, and a child is someone under 18, although the age of consent at the moment is 17, but the damage you can do to a child can actually affect their whole life into the future. It's a very serious abuse to commit. We've all lived through COVID and uh, lockdowns uh, and you'll hear people talk about how positive it has been in many regards because they've had to stop, think, reflect uh, and indeed uh, that's resulted in them changing the way that uh, they've looked at on life and lived their lives uh, because they've had the time to stop and reflect on their lives. But that's not always a a good thing. Uh, You hear other people then talking about the isolation of it all, uh, the long days, being depressed, too much time to think. And and I wonder if that time to think has led to people reliving experiences. That that is right. So so there's a a few angles to it. Actually, some people who are contacting us now are people who had set aside in a back corner of their mind, had set aside things that happened them a long time ago and actually COVID did give them time to think about it and they are coming looking for help which is great because you know it's kind of clearing that, it's hopefully clearing and addressing something that has been a burden in the back of their minds that they haven't addressed. But the reality of COVID for a lot of people was that they were forced into closer proximity so it's going back to that thing again of where people had less escapes often from uh, from an abuser so somebody who would otherwise have been um, that the abuse wouldn't have happened during working hours because the abuser would have been out at work or the person being abused would have been out at work now working from home uh, in some way so we I mean a lot of people talk about the value for instance of working for, from home I think we have to be really careful and employers have to be really careful to, to recognise that there will be people for whom the workplace is a place of sanctuary Okay. And uh, and that they must be, you know, they must be facilitated in 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 having that sanctuary. So there was that, and then there there was that business of the the the, the escapes, the diversions, the things that take your mind off your your hardship, off your pain. Those things just weren't there as much. There was more of it in twenty. There was more opportunity to get out and about in twenty twenty one. But that brought its own issues then where people were desperate to get out to socialise and the rest of it. Mm. And we did see a rise of people contacting us who had recently suffered rape and other sexual abuse as, as the, in socialising areas. As the restrictions were lifted. Let me just yes. repeat your number, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight, And we'll give it a, again, that number, in a, a couple of minutes' time. But let's talk about rape because the majority of calls to your helpline Uh, were because somebody had been raped and the vast majority of people who contacted the helpline were women. Yes, the vast majority were and this is always the case. The, 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 The reality of sexual violence is that it is what's called a gendered crime insofar as it disproportionately affects women more than it does men. And certainly that is our current science and our current finding on it. I have my own uh, theory that in due course, men will feel more confident in recognising that they suffered sexual abuse and coming forward about it. Because sometimes men can be caught by their own stereotype that they're not supposed to be abused by somebody else in this way and and they're ashamed of it. But 
typically because it is a power imbalance, mm. because there are stereotypes, uh, because of the way, even the way in which modern stereotypes, including pornographic stereotypes, come about, there is a real um, sense in which, a sense in which sometimes uh, abusers feel they are entitled to sex, they're entitled mm. to uh, engage in sexual activity when somebody doesn't want it. And typically, that is women who are at the receiving end of that uh, and men who are carrying out the abuse. This okay. is, of course, not blaming all men, but simply saying our society, our culture, and, and the way people think is often that way, that they they, they do not care uh, that there is abuse because of a sense of entitlement. So mm. that is always the way. 80% of those who contact the helpline are women. 90% of the people who come into Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and indeed the other rape crisis centres around the country typically are women as well mm. looking for help, either yeah. for recent or old abuse. Right, I have a different theory. I'm not sure what you'd make of it, uh, but I, I would be uh, amazed if I'm wrong in thinking that the vast majority of abusers uh, are men uh, far bigger than that figure? What was it? Eighty-one percent of those abused are women. I, I would imagine the majority of abusers. Uh, you'd be talking about ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent of it abusers are, are men, uh, and yeah, that right. uh, and that they're cowardly men. This would be my theory that they're cowardly men. They're insecure men, uh, uh, and I would uh, imagine that most of the time when these men abuse, that they abuse women or children. Uh, and uh, I'd be interested as well if ever there was a breakdown of the type of abuse that the men contacting you were reporting because I'd imagine that most of the men who contact you to say they were abused will tell you that they were abused as children because men wouldn't be uh, brave enough to take them on uh, if they were adults. Yes, yeah, so, so men, uh, so you're 100% right about that, uh, that the figures of who are the abusers is very, very high uh, in terms of men. That comes across in the crime statistics and in, in the statistics when we look at who the perpetrator was as well of the abuse, even if they don't go to the courts. Um, in terms of abuse of men, yes, there's a high percentage still of men who are abused as children. There's a growing number of men who are abused as adults but they too are are sexually abused by men so it is by the absolutely it's a tiny proportion of the abusers as revealed at the moment are women tiny mm. Okay. Well, if uh, people do wish to talk to you, because there's obviously an awful lot of people uh, who are are suffering uh, abuse, your phone line is open 24 hours a day and you can offer professional counselling services to people, uh, as well as a number of other services uh, in terms of making decisions. If people want to decide what to do next, uh, they can speak to you uh, and indeed uh, those working on uh, the helpline on 1-800-77-8888. It's free to phone. It's open 24 hours a day. 1-800-77-8888. 800-77-8888. That's uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre helpline. Nolene, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us you, this morning. That's Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, an independent uh, report uh, for Ryanair from uh, PwC says uh, that Ryanair is one of the largest contributors to economic growth and development in this country and has been since 1985. Let's speak uh, to Ryanair's Head of Communications, uh, Jade Kerwin. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, Obviously uh, a huge airline, the biggest in Europe, but a a very significant part of the Irish uh, economy. Why is it that Ryanair is going to such lengths to tell us all of this? Good morning, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great uh, to speak to you and your listeners uh, this morning. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose so we're delighted to be launching this economic impact report. Like you've mentioned, it was um, independently conducted by PwC, one of the big consultancy firms in Ireland here. Um, this report, I suppose, is for us, it kind of verifies um, everything that we've done in the Irish community over the past 35 years. And I think it's a very good story to tell. I, I suppose people might not necessarily do kind of um, think of us, they maybe look at us now, I suppose, as kind of a big um, operation where they might kind of forget that not too long ago we were a very, very small kind of startup airline and we have grown over that time with the support of the Irish community. And the wider Europe, of course, then as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, we have very kind of humble roots here. And I suppose it's just nice to kind of reflect back sometimes and just look at kind of what brought us there and the change that we've made along the way. Right. Uh, indeed, uh, it's made the world accessible for most of us. Uh, the cost of flying uh, abroad uh, was... Uh, just beyond anybody's comprehension uh, not too long ago uh, and I think back then you could smoke on aeroplanes until the introduction <laughs> of the, 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 the no frills airline uh, and with that uh, came cheap fares and indeed the massive growth of Ryanair Absolutely, and I even think that even as you mentioned, that you could smoke on planes. Or that's such a foreign concept to us now, Joanna. You, you almost forget it as things move so swiftly. Um, and I do think, like when you look back, say, like we're supporting twenty six thousand odd jobs across the country every year. You know, which is phenomenal. We are one of the biggest contributors to the country at the moment, um, and have been uh, throughout that kind of period. You know, we bring in, I think, it's twenty million um, passengers every single year to the Irish economy, which at this kind of point in time, particularly given, not to look back on rainy days, but particularly given the the past two years we've had with COVID, Mm. um, and those people bring in about 1.5 billion as well, contributing to the Irish economy. So it is very much needed kind of boost to our economy, and it's just fantastic. To Rob Michael's words from him, he often says that we're an island, so we can't... um, we, we can't cycle off the island, so air travel is so fundamental to us. Mm. Um, so it's just great that we can deliver that. And as you say, at such kind of low cost, we've over 200 routes um, to and from the country at the moment. And um, just, that's just growing. So our presence is ever kind of growing in Ireland. Mm. We look back at pre-pandemic levels and we're 115% on that now at this stage. So last month um, for August, sorry, should I say, we had um, our highest ever passenger numbers across the network. So it is just an an ever-growing kind of um, presence and we're delighted then that we're so heavily rooted in Ireland and that we can kind of give back to our people um, in that regard as well. Do you think there's a a love-hate relationship with Ryanair? Everybody loves to travel and as I said uh, I think Ryanair made international travel possible not just here but right uh, across Europe uh, and beyond uh, for that matter because of uh, the approach you took to no frills but people liked the frills as well and quite often uh, perceived Ryanair to be mean yeah, so it's so funny because I often see kind of you know, like headlines and they'll say this, that and the other. And so I do think, as you kind of say, it's like people love to hate it almost. 
But, like, the proof is in the pudding. Like, Joe, we still carry the most passengers. We have the largest airline in Ireland. Joe, we're the fourth largest in um, Europe as a whole. And that really speaks for itself. Like, we're growing, I think we're going to hit about 166.5 million passengers across our network this year. And at the same time, they might say, we want kind of more luxurious travel, we want the frills. But... They're obviously very, very happy to, with, with the price point and what the service that they are receiving um, if they continue to fly with us like that. And I'd say we're not going for no reason other than passengers are still booking. OK. Trade unions don't like Ryanair. <laughs> Some of them don't, but um, they don't like many companies, so I don't think we're alone in that. OK, but uh, I think uh, Ryanair, by its own admission, uh, would uh, have a, a, a capitalist ethos. Yes, but look, at the end of the day, like all businesses, we're all out to, to be profitable and that's how we exist. You know, no business would exist if it wasn't um, earning a profit. So that is obviously our kind of ethos. Um, but I do think it's important to know that equally when it comes to, um, I suppose, arguments from trade unions, I don't want to get into the particulars, but do we do abide by all laws. We offer some of the highest pay in Europe and um, very, very good terms and conditions alongside that as well. Mm. Okay, um, there's uh, been a huge challenge in uh, the last couple of years for the aviation industry as a result of COVID and lockdowns and so forth and uh, people's movements being restricted. Uh, where does Ryanair go from here? Yeah, absolutely. As I say, look, I think, um, again, when you kind of look at our schedules, we've launched some of our biggest schedules ever this summer um, with huge increases um, in terms of like routes, but also passenger numbers, particularly um, based against pre-COVID. So if you look back like summer 19, for example, um, I think growth is obviously going to still be on the horizon. We are still taking delivery of more aircraft. um, So we have on order. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, 210 aircraft we've received some still waiting to get some um, but a lot of us are the game changer aircraft so they're more environmentally friendly and more sustainable so again when you kind of look at that cost model they're lower cost in terms of they burn less fuel obviously that's better for the environment as well so it's a win-win situation there's a bit more capacity on them as well about eight more seats 
and um, it just means that we're able to kind of broaden those horizons again in terms of offering more routes, being able to base those in Ireland and throughout Europe, just to I suppose keep driving connectivity, keep boosting tourism, and yeah, just up, up, up. We're hoping to reach two hundred twenty-five million. Uh, passengers by 2026 and we seem to be on track for that so hopefully all goes to plan and we um, yeah, keep mm. progressing. And what about the cost of uh, flying for the traveller? So again, look, I think it, it's you've seen headlines across um, across the previous couple of months, I suppose, in terms of end of low fare travel and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think a lot of that has kind of been taken out of context. Um, naturally, there will always be an increase in, in, in prices when you look at things like uh, recent inflation. And it's not just happening in Ireland, it's happening across Europe. Um, things like fuel costs, they all have to be considered like we are hedged to a degree, which kind of gives us a bit of a competitive advantage compared to some competitor airlines who might not be hedged. But um, at the end of the day, it still has to catch up and we still are going to feel the pinch at some point. Um, I suppose in our world, we are like low fares are always going to be our consistent. So we're always going to aim to have the lowest fares and we always want to deliver that for our customer. So whereas you might see fares kind of bouncing up higher uh, further afield, I definitely think with those, you know, you're probably talking maybe going up to instead of 10 euro fares, it might be 20 euro fares, that sort of a thing. But it's still going to be very accessible, very affordable and um Again, I, I, I don't think we're going to see any too, uh, anything too scary happening around the fairs. All right, OK. Uh, will we see Ryanair flying out of uh, Terminal 2? Um, I don't know if we've been flying out of Terminal 2, um, but I definitely think that we're growing there in Terminal 1. And we, as I say, we've had our biggest summer schedule this year. Mm. We have another 104 routes, um, 800 flights out yeah. there for winter as well, which again is really, really strong considering obviously winter would be a less popular um trying to fly um, and we have got still 33 aircraft based there as well mm. so we are absolutely thriving um, yeah. in Dublin so I think yes yeah despite all d- d- despite all of uh, the problems at, at uh, Dublin airport has Ryanair any uh, opinion on uh, the airport uh, authority Dublin uh, airport uh, authority's uh, ability to manage the airport no look I do think in fairness I think we've all kind of seen or experienced ourselves throughout the summer, I think from about Easter with the, the issues around um, staffing with security and things like that. Look, obviously it was not ideal and um, it you know, obviously impacted our customers as well. If they were, were massive in Dublin, so it was inevitable that it was going to impact our customers too, just like everyone else's. Um, I think they've pulled their socks up since then. I think they did work very, very hard in fairness over the summer to rectify the issue and I think then towards the end of the summer, so we did come out, um, I suppose, a little bit stronger. They, they seem to be doing okay now. Um, but again, look, I, I think they just need to keep that um, level up, up where it is coming into next summer as well. Because again, it's, it's just getting busier and busier. Do we, we seem pent up demand uh, this summer, which I suppose is a bit extraordinary and maybe a little bit close in. But um, Joe, next summer there'll be no excuses. Okay, Jade, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program. Thank you so much, Michael. Jade Kerwin is uh, the head of communications uh, for Ryanair. Now, uh, email that comes to me from uh, John Mulholland, who says, "Good morning." Uh, that speaker on the energy crisis, that was Suzanne Rogers of Social Justice Ireland, hit the nail on the head when she said the government should have looked into the needy for the energy credit instead of handing it out to single householders who don't need it. I live in a row of houses with five single men 
each side of me and four in our family. So where is the logic in that? Thanks. And just ask this one on the next debate, whenever that is. Thank you indeed, John. Uh, I think I understand the point uh, that if you're living on your own, you're going to be using less electricity than four of you uh, living in the one house. Uh, somebody asked Tom and Navin saying, is this it from now on, these high electricity prices or will they ever come down uh, again? I don't know, Tom and Navin. I don't have a crystal ball. I think they do expect them to come down uh, with uh, the war, which will inevitably end and the price of international gas prices and alternatives, possibly more to the point, being put in place in terms of providing energy uh, to people in this country. Somebody else asking if uh, the fuel allowance uh, is also going to get a, a double payment. Well, if you're on the fuel allowance, you're probably a pensioner and you'll get the double payment. You'll get an increase in your pension. You also get a €500 top-up and your fuel allowance will be increased and you'll be getting it for more weeks of the year than would have been the case. So there's been a significant increase uh, in terms of what you'll be receiving as a result of the measures announced in the budget. Now let's uh, return to a a local issue, that of Our Ladies Hospital in Navan. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, Taoiseach, the sham review into the future of Navan A&E is now complete. I say it's a sham review for a number of reasons. First of all, the people carrying out the review were the people who made the original decision. Never a good way to do a review uh, in Irish democracy. Secondly, uh, the Minister for Health promised that there would be engagement with the local community. There was absolutely none. Thirdly, uh, the Minister, Damien Ingers, promised that a future for NAV and A&E would be included uh, in the review. It simply wasn't. The review was rushed. It didn't talk to the medical staff uh, in Drogheda uh, whatsoever. Um, And... Right now, we have a situation in Navan A&E that has never been as busy. Uh, 105 patients in one day uh, in Navan A&E. 50 of those would have had to go to Drogheda if Navan A&E had closed last June, as was planned. There were 13 people on trolleys last week uh, in the A&E. They have to reopen wards to fit people in at the moment. It's not the case now, Taoiseach, that you owe the Save Navan Hospital campaign a debt of gratitude and a thanks for our work in keeping key capacity for the A&E open during this type of time of crisis and will you guarantee an invested future in Navanini into the future? In in relation to the Navan review, I haven't seen the Navan review yet uh, so I can't confirm your perspectives on it in respect of your your view that it has a lot of shortcomings Um, but I will engage with the Minister for Health in relation to the review Um, and um, uh, the 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 issues are, are not simple either And there have been clinicians on all sides have different perspectives on this, in Mead and and elsewhere. Um, And um, I think we have to make sure that whatever we do is in the best interest of patients in the first instance, and that the best outcomes are achieved um, in terms of treatment, right place, right time, in terms of the severity of of, of, of a case or of of an illness. And there's no doubt that the the hospitals are under a lot of pressure at the moment because of COVID-19, the, the, the aftershocks of COVID-19 and what will be a difficult winter with, with an anticipated flu and anticipated um, waves of, of COVID. Uh, and I would just appeal to people to get vaccinated, uh, both get the COVID vaccine and get the, the flu vaccine. Uh, absolutely vital in terms of prevention of getting sick yourself, but also reducing pressures. Um, but I will. Um, the government will examine that and the minister will examine the 
um, the review that has, been, that has been undertaken and will engage with, with, with uh, stakeholders in, in relation to it. That's the Taoiseach Micheál Martin responding to Ain Tu's Peter Tobin in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you know or if you think it's important for that matter, but public transport in Luxembourg is free. In Germany, apparently, they've agreed to extend a trial period of heavily subsidised public transport. Uh, These are some of the issues that were mentioned in a private member's motion put to the doll yesterday, which highlighted how the cost of fuel is impacting on everybody in the country, but particularly on people living in rural Ireland who require more flexible and accessible public transport links and that public transport services in rural Ireland are inaccessible and unreliable. The motion called on the government uh, to provide free public transport, amongst other things, including investing in rural transport and upgrading buses and trains. This motion was tabled by Thomas Pringle, a TD from Donegal and a member of the independent group. Now, his motion was not opposed by the government, but after a, a very long debate, Thomas Pringle sounded frustrated and indeed Dejected. I could be, I suppose, forgiven for thinking that maybe there was a reshuffle that took place um, there that we didn't know anything about. That the uh, Minister for Transport have changed to yourself, Minister Collins, or to De- Deputy Austin Smith, um, because nobody from transport seems to bother to turn up to this debate here today, which I think is, is telling in itself as well. You know, and uh, if there was a genuine reason why they couldn't be here, normally a Minister would inform, inform you beforehand that there was something happened. So that hasn't happened. So it just say, it seems that they just didn't bother arses turning up, and um, that shows maybe what the, the what the government thinks about the transport uh, across the country and thinks about the issues, and probably shows what they think about the opposition anyway, and maybe shows what they think about independence as well. But that's uh, debate for another matter. So it is disappointing, and uh, I know we had a mess of red out there from the Minister for Transport, but it would be nice if he'd actually bothered his arse to turn up. All right, let's speak to Thomas Pringle. Good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. As you said there, you were disappointed. Uh, I I take it that the language you used uh, would uh, be because you were wondering what was the point of it all? Yeah, good morning. Thanks very much. Yeah, you know, I mean, the private member's business is quite important business of the week. And, you know, and the reality is that government ministers are accountable to the doll. And uh, that is a legal situation. Um, But it seems that government ministers have a tendency now not to bother us turn up to the doll and um, and I think that shows a, a complete disrespect for the parliament and a disrespect for the Irish people as well um, where they won't come and participate and talk about these debates that are very relevant to their own departments. Okay. Uh, what does it mean when the government says it's not opposing your motion? Yeah, this is, well, this is probably the other side of it. I mean, the government has been has adopted this stance over the last number of months now where they don't oppose or they oppose very few private members' motions. But it basically means that the, the doll has passed the motion as it stands there now and that the doll is calling for uh, free public transport to be made available. But the government and usual government standards just can ignore that and don't, aren't under any obligation to actually act on it. So it shows a double standard that they operate in as well in relation to... Um, debates to take here, take place on the doll and they don't have the courage of their own convictions to actually put their own position on the record and make that count. Okay. 
it, it would seem uh, that it's not just yourself or the independent group or other members of uh, the Dáil uh, who believe uh, that something should be done. Uh, I'm sure you were very interested in reading the report from the OECD, which suggests uh, that the government's approach of trying to get us all into uh, electric cars is the wrong approach. Yeah, I was very interested. I wasn't aware of that actually at the at the time when the motion was put forward, and I read it, read it yesterday afterwards. And that, that is very interesting, and that, that is a fact. Like, I mean, the fact that if everybody gets into electric cars, we're still going to have the same problems uh, right across the country. That you're still going to have to have a car to be able to actually live uh, life reliably in rural Ireland, and that's wrong. And that shouldn't be what we'd be aiming for. What we should be aiming for is to have people to be able to avail of public transport. Transport is actually response to their needs rather than them responding to the needs of the or to what the transport company decides to put on, um, and that's that's what we need. I mean, the very, I'm sure it's the same mm. in your in your own area, mm. but and, and it's very difficult for somebody living in rural Ireland to actually use public transport to ensure that they can attend work. Mm. Uh, and you know, if you can't do it for those basic things, how can you do it for anything else? Yeah, uh, the report seems to be saying that we're car dependent uh, because. You can't get anywhere <laughs> if you live in certain areas yeah. uh, unless you have a car. Uh, there isn't a bus or there isn't a, a train. Uh, so you have to use your car. Uh, and by continuing with this car dependence, by asking us to get uh, electric cars, that's not going to change the situation. You're still going to have to use your car because there won't be a bus or a train, as the case may be. That's 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 it, and 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 actually, electric cars aren't affordable for very many people as well. Like which is a, which is a problem that's not going to get any easier in the ne- in the next few years either. You know, so by by rolling out uh, a trans- proper transport service, we can do an awful lot in terms of making people not have what what's called forced car ownership, um, because and Donegal would be one of the highest levels mm. in the country, and um, where people, in order to be able to live, you have to have a car. Like take for example. From my own town, Kelly Beggs, the the nearest cinema is over fifty kilometres away. Um, the nearest swimming pool is over thirty kilometres away, and the nearest hospital is over fifty kilometres away as well. Like, you know, so if you haven't got a car, you can't rely on transport to get you to any of those places, mm. and that's that is a real problem. And and indeed, Donegal would probably have one of the most highly developed rural transport uh, services in the country, um, but yet it's still lacking, still needs to be developed further to ensure that people can actually live and survive without the need to have a car. And the problem is, uh, of course, that no matter where you live, if you live in the best part of the country in terms of road infrastructure, if you're doing any sort of driving at peak hours, you're going to find yourself in traffic jams uh, and places uh, that are, are clogged up because as the OECD puts it, there isn't the road space. Yeah, exactly. Like I mean, if you look at it, like I mean, I rent a house here in Dublin, and it's it's less than three miles from my house to the doll. It takes me over an hour. To get into work here in the morning, I'd say that's great crack. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very frustrating. Yeah, e- eating the breakfast roll and all of that, and yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. You know, and that's the kind of that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, th- thankfully, I don't live in Dublin permanently yeah. because it would drive me mental. Yeah. But uh, you know, the, 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 it's, that's the thing that people in Dublin are facing. But yeah. people in Donegal and, and rural counties yeah. are facing. You know, they're facing to go and get a weekly shopping to, to you know to get to maybe uh, yeah. a multiple supermarket. It could be 30, 40 miles away. But th- this is the point, though. Like, I mean, just take your own example driving into the doll there. If you had an electric car, you're still going to spend a- an hour driving the three kilometres.
cars uh, and all the cars around you might be electric cars they might be giving off less uh, emissions but there isn't the road space to take down that level of congestion uh, yeah, exactly. if you had space for other vehicles uh, e-scooters and stuff and you know we get so many complaints about e-scooters because they're dangerous because the space isn't for them uh it would be a different thing. I've said before uh, that in time, uh, if we're going to continue like this, uh, you're going to have one-way streets everywhere and you'll have a a lane for pedestrians, a lane for the few cars that are on the road because other people will be on e-scooters and bicycles in the other lane or or they'll be on the trains or elsewhere. Yeah, well, I think that's what we need to do. We need to to make less and less space available for cars um, because, I mean, as cars are con- con- continuously getting priority, then nothing else is going to happen. Um, but in order to do that, well, you have to make sure that there's adequate transport needs mm-hmm. sources available for, for the rest of the, the people as well, you know, and that's 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 what I think needs yeah. to happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, we have this tendency in Ireland, I mean, basically, where you get rid of all the cars and then sometime in the future we'll put on the buses. Yeah. So why, not, why not put on the buses first and show people that they don't need a car? Mm. And then, then you'll actually, the amount of cars on the road. And that's it. If you go to get the bus, that the bus arrives uh, and it isn't late and you lose your job because it's late and you can get on the bus even if you're in a wheelchair, as the case may be. And I know there are points that you raised in your motion yesterday, but what about that key point? that you, you, you called for free public transport. Is that viable? Yes, I think it is viable. I mean, I think the public transport in the country at the moment costs around about 600 million euros a year to provide public transport as, as it is at the moment. Uh, you know, it could be provided for free and um, that and 600 million sounds like an awful lot of money, but in the context of the overall government budget, it's not huge. I think it's about 1% of the overall budget. You know, so it's, a, it's an amount of money that I think is affordable and I think it actually would... Um, make bigger returns back to um, society uh, over time if it was actually invested in and done and and even improve the health of people as well and one of the biggest problems in cities and stuff like that there is uh, the fumes from exhaust exhaust fumes and stuff like that there and the impact that that would have on people's health so there is huge benefits and I think it's something that needs needs to be considered and if you look at I mean in various places around Europe there's different uh, iterations of it where public transport has been free and it seems to be working Alright, okay maybe you'd be more inclined to get uh, the bus if it was free than pay for the petrol especially given the current day prices and uh, there's all this talk about climate change and so on Alright, we leave it there thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Uh, that's Independent TD for Donegal Thomas Pringle Michael Reed on LMFM PD4 represents 6,500 members of the Army, the Naval Service and the Air Corps. This week it's holding its annual conference in Donegal. And yesterday, members of PD4 passed a motion calling on the government to fully implement the findings of the Commission on the Future of the Defence Forces when it comes to pay and conditions. The building momentum pay agreement will will certainly... Uh, be allocated to defence staff and and the broader uh, commission report uh, is about making sure that we both retain staff and attract newer recruits in over and above uh, people who may leave. So uh, that will be very tangible and there's been some changes in some of the allowances in respect to naval and so on that have improved the situation somewhat. Uh, But it remains work in progress but building momentum will will certainly uh, improve the situation. And then there's the recruitment of a head of transformation, a head of strategic human resources um, at senior management levels, which is crucial. 
um, and a significant cultural change and allocations to meet pay and allowance uh, enhancements recommended by the Commission. Uh, the budget does include those changes also. And that's, you know, these will be tangible measures that will make a difference. Well, that's the Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak now to Mark Keane, who is president of uh, PD4. Good morning to you, Mark, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what would your members in Donegal make of what the Taoiseach said there, that your situation has improved somewhat? Uh, very good morning, Michael, to your listeners, and thanks again. Yes, whilst we welcome the, the pre-announcements and the announcements by both the Minister and the, the Taoiseach, indeed, it's, this can only be the start. We've lobbied long and hard over many years to, to address the shortfall comings within our members' pay. Uh, the Commission on Defence, which the Taoiseach spoke about there, is something that we, we worked closely with. We made a number of submissions, both orally and we... We welcome the decision of the government to, to accept a report. We now need, the, the, in the interim, to, to, to put these policy motions in place. They, they need to be acted on very quickly. I said it just in my speech mm. when I addressed the minister that they can't be allowed to gather dust. We haven't got time. We don't have the luxury of time. The Defence Forces is at a slow save in numbers since the 1970s. There's the workloads are gathering across Europe. We need it. we need a defence forces more than we ever did before. Would you refute what the uh, Taoiseach said there? Because uh, the Taoiseach seemed uh, to be of the impression uh, that the defence forces were recruiting people quicker than people were leaving the defence forces. You said in your speech yesterday that you're hemorrhaging personnel at an alarming rate. We certainly are. We, we have the lowest numbers in uniform since the 1970s. We're currently, we have a strength under the government's white paper on defence, a strength of 9,500. Our strength is at 8,038. So we're well below even the government's own target. We've seen 347 personnel discharged from the defence forces alone this year. Unfortunately, we're running to standstill. We're not addressing the core issue, which is retention. And I said it just in my speech. We will not solve the problems by recruiting. We cannot recruit our way out of this. We must address the issues which are the retention of the people already and who stayed in the Defence Forces through tick and ten and served the state loyally with loyalty. We now need to, to focus on those people and assess what they need and then we can go back out and recruit people back into the organisation. Okay, um, so the recruitment isn't happening uh, at fast enough a pace. Why is that the case? Uh, I don't think there's been any good news about being a member of uh, the Defence Forces. We've heard of soldiers sleeping in cars, uh, members of uh, the Air Corps looking for a family income supplement and so on. Unfortunately, these things did happen in the past and it did show the failings of both the government and military management in addressing the issues. But thankfully, we have addressed some of those issues and I said that, that we have and it's very welcome the pronouncements by the previous minister and this minister that have gone somewhere to addressing them. But unfortunately, the Defence Forces were neglected over a long period of time. So we are now trying to play catch-up. Uh, I've 32 years service done myself in the Naval Service. I enjoy their job, I'm proud to serve, I wear the uniform, I want to. But unfortunately, we have to convince people that it is that we represent citizens, we're actually citizens in uniforms ourselves, that it is a career worthwhile and that they can have a robust life, that they can travel the world, that it'll give them great experience. But it's just we need to address the issues head on 
make it fit for purpose again. Right. Uh, we heard there that there was a, an improvement in, in allowances, uh, but you uh, described those improvements as meagre. Yes, the, the, the allowances, what they were talking about, if we take the rational allowance, is the daily allowance to feed people. We went from a historic low of 420, 4.27 euro to pay to feed somebody three meals a day. Now we welcome the Minister's announcement yesterday and it's something we've been calling for for the last 12 months and we, we do welcome it. I would like to acknowledge when the Minister does get things right. But it took a whole year to get to this stage. So these are the things and also there has been announcements in military service loans and the new rates of pay for no entrance. But unfortunately we still do not attract a premium rate of pay for the excessive hours we work. Somebody is not unusual for a member of the Defence Force to work 107 hours a week. They're not being remunerated for those hours. What I mean by that is whether you're on duty around the barracks, mm. if you're on a ship, or if you're in the Air Corps, you're not being compensated for the extra hours working. Uh, we were talking a, a little bit earlier on about some of uh, the problems at uh, Dublin Airport over the summer. Uh, I think there was some bemusement uh, at the army being drafted in. Uh, people wondered if they had nothing else to do. Uh, and there was a lot of concern about uh, the rates that were being paid to soldiers uh, for working extra hours. Uh, what, 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 what are people saying about that in Donegal this week? It, it was... It's not unusual it, when you wear a uniform to be, to be called upon to serve the state in various tasks. In, in the 80s, it was servicing buildings. There was driving buses. We're a professional army. We've moved on from that, we like to think. In saying that, if we're tasked with things by the government, we do it. But it did show the short fate, shortcomings again in the system where we were going to use members of the Defence Forces as cheaper labour than the people who were employed in there. It just seemed to me that we were propping up private industry again. All we asked for, and we, were, we acknowledge that the Minister did act on it when we raised our concerns, and it did sanction the correct payment for our members. But we are we are stretched. I know people say the Defence Forces, we have commitments to overseas, we have commitments at home, mm. the Naval Service, the Air Force commitments. And also, during COVID, I'd like to think that people saw the Defence Forces put into action and we were used in service to the state, inclement weather, fires, floods. We are tasked with many, many things but also people must remember, we need 9,500 personnel to do all these taskings. We've just over 8,000. So we're constantly doing more with less. Mm. Um, where did uh, the Army get the time to deploy uh, personnel to Dublin Airport? I mean, surely uh, they had something else to do. Uh, and what wasn't done uh, if uh, they were working in the airport? What wasn't done is you were taking people out of their home units, so that's training courses, career courses, preparation for overseas, people who were going on annual leave. All of that was taken away and the focus was given on the mission to maintain the operation tempo in Dublin Airport. So we took them from one part of the country, bussed them to another part of the country. They'd done that job. But then these people, these same people have been away from home for long periods of time then had to go back into the barracks as their, relative, their, their own units and then do the other taskings. What I mean by that is they then had to do the security taskings in the military installations they came from mm. or they had to pick up the slack for courses or training again at the weekends. Mm. Right. Uh, is, is it that you're taken for granted or uh, because it, it's a disciplined group of personnel um, that uh, 
responds to orders uh, that so there's a, an assumption that you'll do as you're told and uh, 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 because of state security and that uh, you're silenced to a large degree and there's uh, been this ongoing uh, I- issue as to whether you should have uh, trade union representation. Uh, we welcomed the announcement earlier this year that we, we have got affiliation to it too, so we long campaigned for over 25 years. We understand that we take an oath of allegiance to the state. We understand we wear a uniform. We understand we're citizens in uniform and we're here to serve the state and we're reflective of the citizens we serve. But in saying that, all we've ever asked for is to be treated fairly and the same way as any other worker in the state. What I mean by that is that workers in the private sector and the public sector, they're governed under the Working Time Directive and the Working Time Act. They're also paid the correct rate of pay for excessive hours worked. That's all we've ever looked for, but mm. for itself and our members, and especially their families. But the working time directive applies to you, does it not? Does it not apply to Certain everybody? elements do, but other right. like from negotiations with the minister currently, and they're looking for exemptions for certain, not enough if we take the seagoing element of the Navy or if you take exercises mm. or you take the, the Special Forces, the Army Ranger. We, we understand that that is robust and that lifestyle doesn't lend itself to it. But other elements that they are trying to exclude the Defence Forces from it. See, currently, mm. as I said, you could see members of Defence Forces working up to 107 hours a week. Uh, 107? Yes, if you take an operational unit uh, at sea, one of the state vessels at sea. That is the, 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 mm. the patrol plan they're frequently on, could see them on 107 hours a week. Right, that's close to what would be three full weeks, 120 hours yes, in, in one week. The, the, the patrol plan from North Fleet off would be a 16-day cycle. So the, when the ship departs Hobo Line, it, it's operational 24 hours it can be tasked with anything at short notice so that's what happens and the same with any barracks around the country we do not know our members when they come into work on a Monday morning where they're going to be deployed mm. if there's an actual disaster in Letterkenny the, the troops are moved from Finner the same in Galway the same in Limerick the same in Cork 107 hours over how many days? 5 days or 7 days? it'd be over 7 days right it, it, it has been raised so that that's what that's, that's working that, that's working 15 hours a day Yes, at least the, the ship's patron would allow you for eight hours rest-off period each night. Right. Uh, so you work, you eat, you sleep, you work, you eat, you sleep. More or less, yes, yes, for a 16-day cycle. <laughs> and that continues for some <laughs> members of It's faith. little wonder there's a problem recruiting people, Mark. Well, I'm sorry. It, in saying that, it, the Naval Service is rewarding and it can be, but the problem is we need to, to compensate, as I keep saying, the people for doing the job. We need mm. to show them the respect for doing it. OK, uh, but you are public servants uh, and as the Taoiseach highlighted there, uh, you're covered by the Building Momentum a- Agreement, uh, which uh, dictates the pay uh, for all public servants. Uh, and he believes that that will uh, address a lot of your concerns. Do you believe it will? Uh, our members are voting currently on it and we're when we finish conference today, we close the conference, we're then, we have the task of, of counting them. As we said, it will go some way to addressing it. It, it. it offers something to our members. But also, as I said, we're starting from a historically low place. We need to, especially with the Commission, we need to get those recommendations that the Commission have said across the line. Long service increments, the lands corporate, and the working time up. We need to get these things in place if we're to reverse the trend. Okay. 
Look, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm sure people will oh, be thank interested. Thank you again. Much appreciated. No, uh, anytime. I'm sure people will be very interested uh, to hear the outcome of uh, the vote uh, later, as you say. But uh, thank you, as I say, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Mark Keane speaking to us uh, from Donegal, where PD Fora is holding its annual conference. And Mark is its president. Uh, president. That's the Permanent Defence Forces Representative Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, in Kerry today, there's only one story that they're talking about. Indeed, it's a story that's disturbed everybody in the country this morning, I think. Let's go to Radio Kerry. Trassa Murphy is the news editor with Radio Kerry. Good morning, Trassa. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. What happened in Tralee yesterday? Michael, the most extraordinary and shocking events panned out yesterday at Ra Graveyard, uh, just at the just outside Tralee, it's a large cemetery in Tralee. At around quarter to twelve there was a funeral taking place for a lady called Bridget O'Brien, a woman who died at the very relatively young age of around forty nine. And um during the course of the funeral a fracas broke out and it led to the stabbing of one of the mourners at the funeral, Thomas Dooley from Killarney, a man in his 40s, he was stabbed. Uh, Emergency services at the scene uh, tried to resuscitate him, but he died at the scene. His wife, Siobhan, was also stabbed. Uh, She has been taken to University Hospital Kerry, where uh, the injuries are are not life-threatening. And all of this played out in a very, very uh, busy part of Tralee, it's uh, one of the main arteries. It's on the it's on the road. That's one of the major main arteries into Tralee. It's close to Kerry County Council's headquarters, and it's actually just across the road from University Hospital Kerry. And it's always a very very busy road. And the fact that this all played out um, first of all at a funeral, which is deeply shocking and sacrilegious, um, that a, a grieving family w- would have to be s- subject to this and that a man lost his life and a woman has been injured. Mm. The, count, the county, indeed the whole country, Michael, is mm. still reeling mm. over this. Oh, absolutely. Did you say that Siobhan's injuries are not life-threatening? The Guardian have told us that her stabbing is, is not life-threatening. Now, okay. she has been seriously injured, we understand, but mm. she, but, but it's not life-threatening. No, that's a, a woman who has an awful lot to contend with uh, because she was attacked uh, alongside her now-deceased husband. Am I, I right in thinking, Trassa, that they were attacked by a, a gang of men who came to the funeral armed with slash hooks, knives and machetes? Well, there's a lot of talk now at, about what what transpired and what has come to pass, and a lot of the detail is, is is still confusing, and it needs to be established what exactly took place. Gardaí have been t- tight-lipped, but yes, there are reports that a gang of people are, uh, came to the c- cemetery armed with what are believed to have been slash hooks and machetes. Now, we spoke to the funeral undertaker who was overseeing the funeral and the burial of, of Mrs. O'Brien this morning. We just spoke to him in the past past hour and he said he wasn't really aware of a situation. He said uh, the funeral was taking place when he noticed that there was some activity 
um, taking place. So he made sure that the that the Mrs. O'Brien's immediate family, the the immediate mourners, were moved away and and you know, weren't impacted by that. Uh, he said, fortunately, the funeral did manage to go, did manage to, to go ahead, and and she was laid to rest. And but by all accounts, without any interference from from this from this activity. But it's it's all so very still. Michael, I have to say, it's mm. still all very unclear. There's a lot of rumor. There's a lot of speculation. Yeah. Some of it quite lurid going around but um, the priest uh, who officiated at the funeral yesterday said he wasn't aware of of any of uh, anything untoward occurring so Mm. Still, all has to be established, but there is a lot yeah. of, of, of rumour and speculation yeah. going on. Yeah, it's uh, very, yes, uh, there are reports of, of people arriving there with slash hooks and machetes at the funeral. But uh, as I said, all we know for certain at this stage is that sadly, a man in his forties, forty-four-year-old mm. Thomas Dooley, is now dead, and his 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 wife Siobhan is in University Hospital Kerry, mm. and hopefully recovering, making a full recovery uh, from her stab so. injury. Yeah. It's very hard to understand. Indeed, uh, I think it's very upsetting. It must be all the more upsetting uh, for people in Tralee and Kerry uh, and indeed for those directly involved uh, when it comes to all of that speculation and rumour is there any talk about possible motivation is there a feud at play is there fear of retaliation we understand that the, that those responsible may have been known to Mr Dooley and his wife and we spoke to a county councillor this morning Donald Grady from Clarney where Mr Dooley and his wife lives lived and he appealed for any um, any response or retaliation to to yesterday's murder and attack he appealed for 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 no response and that people should should not retaliate and that he, he urged community talks mediation the Gardaí and other authorities civic authorities to get involved and there has been in Killarney over the years a number of of feuds um, and which have unfortunately resulted in violence over the time. It would not be possible and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to say if they are connected to what happened in, in Tralee Graveyard yesterday in Ra Graveyard yesterday uh, but, uh, but, but, the, but the advice uh, from community leaders such as Councillor Donald Grady who, who knew the Dooley family who knows the Dooley family is that he's pleading for people not to retaliate um, this uh, you know a tragic mm. event oh, a funeral of a, a relatively young woman um, when a family should have been able to grieve her and mourn her and say goodbye to her um, with dignity and love has mm. been um, as I said again I think yeah. it, it's sacrilegious what happened yeah. yesterday and exactly. a, a man is, di- is dead now a father yeah. a husband a grandfather Trasip, thank you indeed. Uh, really is beyond belief. Uh, but thank and you. And I should say yeah. also, to, uh, as I said, the man has been arrested and he, mm. in Cork, uh, Gardaí have been, when, when this happened yesterday, Gardaí were, were liaising with, Gardaí and Tralee were liaising with colleagues in Clarny as well as in Cork City. And as we, we heard there this morning, a man has been arrested, a man in his 30s has been arrested in relation to the murder of Thomas Dooley, in relation to the stabbing of 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 Siobhan Dooley and is being questioned. Okay, Trassa, thank you. As I say, much appreciated. That's uh, Trassa Murphy, uh, who's the news editor with Radio Kerry, uh, and brings our program to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at nine a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. 
The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.